for our promise for today, turn to the Psalms. Psalm 119. Here's a magnificent promise. Psalm 119. Let me get there. And come to about uh, down to verse 100. Let's see. Come to verse 97. Psalm 119, 97. And uh, this is a very unusual promise. In fact, you've got uh, several promises here, but uh, look at verse 97. Psalm 119, 97. It says, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, the operative word there is meditation. We've talked about the importance of meditating in the scriptures. Now, look at these promises. Thou, through thy commandments, has made me wiser than mine enemies. Meditation in the scripture gives you wisdom and discernment and good judgment and understanding. And here the word of God says that if you meditate in the scriptures, it'll make you wiser than your enemies. Now, I want to be smarter than my enemies, don't you? But look at verse, look at the, uh, for they are ever with me means the, the, I think it's something about the promises. His commandments are ever with him. Now look at 99. Thou through thy under, thou, uh, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. That's quite a thought, isn't it? I like the idea of being smarter than my teacher, don't you? <laughs> uh, there's, uh, there's so, uh, you, it's, you cannot exaggerate the importance of this business of meditating in the scriptures, learning to master the word of God, stay in the word of God every day, meditate in the scriptures. Now look at verse 100. I have, under, I have understand more than the ancient, ancients, those in the past. I often find the greatest wisdom are uh, from the past, don't you? Do you ever read any of the writings of our founding fathers, like the Federalist Papers? I stand in awe of the wisdom of the leadership that God gave this country at its founding. Read the Federalist Papers. Uh, those men were uh, political geniuses in one sense. Uh, those uh, the things they wrote, you, you don't find almost, almost nothing like that today. God granted this country uh, almost borders on miraculous, <laughs> the wisdom and the leadership that God gave this country at its founding. I just stand in awe of the founders. Well, what a promise that is. You meditate in the word of God, it'll make you wiser than your enemies, uh, make you wiser than your teachers, um, make you wiser than those great men of the past. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Right, now, if you look what you have in your hand there, does everybody have a handout, okay? On the back side is a map. Now, go, we're going to look at Revelation 2 and 3 today. And uh, these are the uh, seven churches uh, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is speaking to, is preaching to. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's especially important if the Lord Jesus Christ uh, begins to instruct and teach and warn uh, these churches. The, uh, is, it not, uh, is that not the case? And here the Lord Jesus Christ says, look, I am in the midst of the local churches. Uh, that word, uh, the lampstand, means a church, a congregation. In Matthew uh, 16, 18, the Lord says, I will build my ecclesia. Just like the Greeks and the city-states have their ecclesia, their government, with its visibility and locality and organization and democracy, I'm going to have my ecclesia. Uh, I need an organization to uh, organize and uh, advance my cause. Uh, 
And uh, so uh, he, we see that the Lord uh, promises to build his church. By the way, it's future uh, that I will build my church. It's in, there's no church in the Old Testament. Uh, that's uh, a New Testament phenomenon. <clears throat> now, unlike a lot of uh, good dispensationalists, <laughs> I don't believe the church started at Pentecost. I believe it was empowered on the day of Pentecost. We won't take the time to look up the verses, but if you turn to Hebrews uh, 2.12, it says that Christ sang a hymn in the church. Where's the only place we find Christ singing a hymn? <laughs> we find him singing a hymn there at the Last Supper, don't we? By the way, were people being immersed? Do we have any local church ordinances before Pentecost? People were being immersed, getting baptized before Pentecost, weren't they? That's a, a local church ordinance. Or they observing the Lord's table before Pentecost. That's another church ordinance. Uh, all right. In Matthew 26, 30, we see the Lord singing a hymn before they went out. Do you remember when they're at the Last Supper? Before they went out and crossed the Kidron Valley, at night when he went out, uh, they, uh, he sang a hymn with the, with the disciples there. Now, it shouldn't be a test of fellowship. It's not one of those uh, doctrines that you should go and be, uh, you know, be martyred on the stake for. But I believe that the church was empowered on the day of Pentecost, but was in existence prior to Pentecost. In Matthew 18, 17, what he said, bring them, talking about church discipline in that context there. What did he say? You have one, and you, tr you try and go and be reconciled. If a brother won't be reconciled, then you bring two or three witnesses. And then if he won't, respond to those two or three witnesses, then where do you bring that individual? To be, uh, bring them before the ecclesia. Whenever you see the word church, it always means ecclesia. And the Greek word uh, is, comes from the idea of the, uh, the Greek legislative assembly. In the Greek city-state, at uh, regular occasions, on re at regular times, uh, they would send out a call. And they would call out all the male citizens in Athens they would come to the Agora where the uh, government would meet and it would be a legislative assembly. They were, there they would debate and discuss uh, the business of the city-state, the government. And it was, by the way, a pure democracy. We as Baptists, we believe that the church is a democracy. Now, we do have some uh, pastors that think they're popes, but that's not New Testament polity. Uh, my, uh, the job, uh, our job is, as a church is to Follow the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the good pastor, he's always trying to lead the flock to find the mind and the will of God. Is he not? That's his job. And then we all, when we all deliberate, we believe we found the mind of the Lord. He's the head of the church. Then we, as a church, we vote. The church, that's why we call, we call our form of uh, a polity, church government, we call it the, a, a, a democracy. We call the local church a democracy. And the godly, the job, the role of the godly pastor is to lead us and direct us and help us all together, work together to find the mind of the Holy Spirit about what we should do as a church. All right, so the Lord says, I will build my ecclesia. Just like the Athens city-state has its government, which is local, visible, organized, <laughs> and deliberates and legislates, Christ says, I will have a local church. The difference is that Christ is the head of the church. 
And it's the Holy Spirit that will guide us and direct us and show us what we should do, all right? So when you see the word church, it always, I think it's always uh, visible. You can see it. It's local. has locality. I think the term itself, congregation, the, literally the Greek word means a congregation or assembly. And I believe the term itself suggests the idea of visibility, locality, organization, the assembly, a congregation. What have you congregated for? What have you come together for? Uh, that's just my view. Uh, so anyhow, uh, you don't have to agree, but uh, that's what I think that the church is. It's always visible, local, organized, and, democracy, and democratic. If you're meeting together out somewhere in the woods and having a prayer meeting where two or three are gathered together, that's wonderful. You might, might be a member of a church, but that is not the church. Two or three gathered together is not the church. What it is is a, a prayer meeting. And the Lord promised a special blessing when two or three of us come together, does he not? All right. Now let's come over to, look at the, uh, if you would, look at your hand, look at the map on the back. Let me call attention to a couple of things here. What you have is a, uh, this is, would be a map of modern Turkey today. If you're going to t on a tour of, uh, of uh, Turkey, you want to visit the seven churches. It's uh, the Church of the Revelation. These are seven churches that existed in that day. Now, look, do you find Ephesus on there? All right. Uh, Timothy pastored that church by Paul, by the way, uh, stayed at that church for three years. On his third missionary journey, Paul stayed there and taught and preached for, uh, for three years. So they probably got a pretty good foundation, wouldn't you say, in doctrine and, and so on. And then, then after that, uh, Paul sent Timothy there to pastor the church at Ephesus. That's, again, that's probably another very good pastor to have who sat at the feet of the Apostle Paul. And then after Timothy pastored, then they had the Apostle John. I think that's, uh, that's probably a pretty good uh, string of pastors there, is it not? <laughs> the writer of the Gospel of John. So what a foundation this church had. So this is the first church now that uh, we'll look at here in just a minute. All right. And then if you look at your map, you see, uh, uh, look at Ephesus and then right south of Ephesus on the, uh, uh, in that uh, southwestern corner, of this, the, the name in the ancient world was called, it was called Asia, called Asia Minor. They didn't call it Turkey at that time. But if you look, you see all seven churches here. Uh, one commentator said he thought that that was a postal route, that perhaps they would begin the route in uh, Ephesus and uh, Pergamos and then come down in Laodicea. Uh, we don't know. But anyhow, these are seven churches in what would be modern-day Turkey. And uh, you see the Isle of Patmos. You see if Ephesus, then straight south of Ephesus, still on the coast, is Miletus. Ephesus was uh, several, uh, three, four, five miles into the mainland. Remember, Paul was in a rush to get back to Jerusalem. And so instead of going to Ephesus, he had the Ephesian elders meet with him at Miletus there on the coast. And there where he gave his, what we call his Ephesian farewell. We'll look at it. We'll touch on that in just a minute. All right, but off the coast, you see the island of Patmos there. About 10 miles uh, long, about six miles wide. And we, don't, we know that the uh, Roman emperor Domitian exiled many of his uh, political prisoners, you might say, to Patmos. So it was known as sort of a, a, a prison, a place where uh, criminals were exiled to. 
And John said he was there because of the word of Christ and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So uh, it was very important in the mind of Domitian to exterminate Bible Christianity. It was such a threat. So he was a, he was a great persecutor of the Christians. He attempted to claim for himself deity, that he was God. <clears throat> but, uh, all right, <clears throat> so uh, that's, the, uh, that's the church that we're looking at, the church at Ephesus, and then these other seven churches. And if you look on the, uh, back on the other side now where the chart is, uh, that's an outline now of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This is an outline of those seven churches. And it's profoundly important, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is giving some very, very important instructions to this church, all right? I believe the angels are messengers. Literally, the word angel there means messenger. So I think it's talking to, about the pastors or the elders that lead the church. And then the, uh, then the lampstand, uh, that is the church. In fact, the word of God itself says the, that these are messengers and that these are the churches. The church is called a lampstand. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Uh, what is, a, what uh, is the purpose of a lampstand? What would you have a lampstand in your... To, to give light. The Word of God, Paul calls the local church the pillar and ground of the truth. One of the great uh, functions of the local church is to preach truth and defend truth, advance truth. And what's it mean, though, when the Lord says, if you don't repent, that word repent, by the way, means to have a change of mind. If you really repent, then that'll be reflected later on probably in a change of, on a change of behavior. But the word itself doesn't mean a change of behavior. It means they, you need to change your mind. <laughs> so now you need to change your mind. You're going in the wrong direction. And so the Lord uh, tells these churches that they, that they need to repent and do the first works and so on. All right, but that, that lampstand, he says he, he threatens to remove the lampstand. I don't know that it necessarily believes that the Lord's going to close the church down and you know, convert it into a bowling alley or something like that. I think what it means, he's removing the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's removing the blessing from that church. And that church no longer gives light and instruction. Now, you folks work out here in the world among unsaved people. Aren't you often struck how ignorant these people are that claim to go to church regularly? They don't know anything about raising the family, about raising their children. They let uh, the TV and uh, uh, Walt Disney raise their children, you know. And they don't know, any, don't know anything. And it's striking how ignorant they often are. I believe God, the Lord has moved the lampstand from that church. People are going to that church, but they're not getting truth. They're not getting the light of the Word of God. So I think that's what removal of the lampstand means. It means, uh, it means to remove light and instruction. They might uh, go th uh, through the motions of preaching the Word of God, but there's no Holy Spirit power that attends it. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open up the Word of God, we've, we've met in vain, have we not? <laughs> in one sense. All right. So <clears throat> anyhow, the uh, look at the... Uh, the church at Ephesus, and look at the, let's look at the passage first, all right? Let's go to Revelation 2, <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 1. Okay, now we're not going to read both chapters. I just want to look at this first church, this first this church at Ephesus, all right? It says, unto the angel, unto the pastor, unto the elder, the, the leader of the church of Ephesus, 
Right. These things saith he that upholdeth the seven stars, the seven pastors, and in his right hand. Listen, the Lord's aware of what's going on in the local church, is he not? He holds the pastor in his hand, those that lead the church. Uh, the Lord knows, he knows our works, he knows what we're doing, and what the Word of God is saying here. Who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, who walks in the midst of the local churches. Uh, the Lord's with us here today. He's at, uh, he's at Beacon. He knows what's going on. His presence is with us, is it not? I know thy works. By the way, this is said about every one of these churches. Lord, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know, I know what's going on. And thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them. You've tested them. You've uh, proved them. You've examined them very carefully. And by the way, I believe this would be the equivalent of what I would call today the fundamentalist church. Uh, other churches, they, they like that. By the way, I don't believe these seven churches are prophetical. Uh, some of the uh, church historians and commentators like to say that uh, these seven churches represent seven periods in church history. I don't believe that. They say, for example, the church at Thyatira represents the papacy, the Catholic church. Uh, the Catholic Church is not a church in the New Testament sense. It's, it, it's a, it's, it doesn't meet the standard of the New Testament. It's not a church. There's nothing, uh, nothing, it's not an ecclesia. It's not a church, if you understand the history of Rome. And yet uh, these, say, these people say, well, that's the, the church at Thyatira is, the, is like the papal church. And so they would say that that church represents the church in the Middle Ages when the Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Inquisition dominated Europe. Well, no, I, I don't think so. There's just other reasons. But I don't believe these churches represent seven periods of church history. But if you do, that's okay. That shouldn't be a test of fellowship. That's all right. Nothing, I guess there's nothing wrong with that. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them to be liars. It's the job of the local church just to test people and examine and investigate people, isn't it? I've had people when I, I've had people call me up and say, could I come and uh, preach? I never heard of them before in my life. And they want to come and preach in the church. Uh, I, 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 you don't know anything about people. People just call you up. You know, they could be an atheist for all, for all I know. They just need to maybe need a handout or something. But anyhow. Here we see a, a church, by the way, this, this a place is, is very important. This is a church that separates, that practices ecclesiastical separation. We as a church are not to be fellowshipping with uh, uh, weak and corrupt and compromising institutions, are we not? Whether it be Christian camps or colleges or what else, or, or evangelists or preachers or other churches. If those churches are walking in disobedience, uh, we can't fellowship with him. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have what? Fellowship. Obedience to the word of God is the basis of fellowship. I heard one guy say, well, I'm a friend of anybody that's a friend of Jesus. Well, I, I, I want to be a friend of anybody that's a true friend of Jesus too. But I want to know, are they obedient? 
You can be sound in doctrine. You can be an independent Baptist church and not be obedient. You can have all kinds of new evangelical speakers come in and so on. They have the wrong speakers. And we're to separate from people who are disobedient, are we not? And if I refuse to separate from a disobedient man, that makes me disobedient. I know it gets kind of complicated here after a while. But uh, look at this church. This church is a church that practices ecclesiastical separation. Uh, separating from institutions that are compromising and corrupt and so on. Look at verse 3. And, that, and has borne, been willing to carry the burden, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. This is at the root of all difficulty, is it not, in one sense. Once I lose, I lose my love for the Lord, then all these other problems begin to come into my life. See, this is the foundation. This is the first line, the first wall of defense. I've got to have the right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What did the Lord Jesus Christ tell Martha was the one thing needful? What's the one thing needful? Mary was sitting at Jesus. My, the one thing needful is sit at Jesus' feet and learn of him, is it not? There's no higher priority in my life than a strong, consistent prayer life and a a systematic study, meditation in the Word of God. That's the foundation. Everything else flows from that right there. Uh, The the foundation was being attacked. You're losing your first love. Then pretty soon you're going to be like all these other churches, or some of these, not all, but some of these other churches on the list. All right? You've lost your first love. Now, turn, uh, turn over to, do you remember the parable? Turn to Matthew, if you would, real quickly. Matthew 13, verse 33. I think this is what is being hinted at here, not, or being the Lord is suggesting here. In Matthew, in the great 13th chapter, with those parables of the mystery form of the kingdom. Matthew 13, come down to verse 33. Do you remember this woman that hid the leaven in the three measures of meal? By the way, that's a striking phrase. You find that numerous times throughout the Old Testament in particular. Three measures. Uh, there were three measures that, that and, uh, involved in some of uh, three, three measures of meal, three measures of grain involved in the offerings. But look at Matthew 13, verse 33. It says, In another parable spake he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto, a, unto leaven. Now, all the word of God is always consistent in its types. Without exception, all through the word of God, leaven is a type of evil. Leaven is that which destroys and which corrupts, without exception. Remember, the leaven of the Sadducees was false doctrine. Nothing will destroy a church faster than false doctrine, will, or probably indicate you come down, you're already down the road somewhere to apostasy by the time you get to tolerating false doctrine in the church. Uh, the Pharisee, the, what was the leaven of the Pharisees? Self-righteous hypocrisy. Uh, what was the leaven of Herod? Worldliness and carnality. And so always through the word of God, leaven is always a type of that evil which destroys and corrupts. All right, in another parable spake unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. 
That little, that leaven corrupted everything. I mean, we talked about Christendom before, false professing Christianity that we saw there in, in these parables. But it was leaven in this three measures of meal that uh, corrupted professing Christianity, corrupted Christianity. Now, the old, uh, some of the old commentators talked about the rule of first mention. I don't know if it's always 100% true, but I found it's true but most of the time when I've looked at it. The rule of first mention is the first time that you see something in the Word of God, that, that's going to be the standard meaning and definition of it. The first time you, uh, for example, now t- uh, over, turn over to uh, Genesis quickly, the Genesis 18. Genesis 18. And come in verse 1, Genesis 18, verse 1. I want you to see the first time the three measures is mentioned in the Bible. Keeping in mind the rule of first mention. Here I think it means, it shows the significance of the three measures of meal. Genesis 18. Verse 1, and the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre. The Lord appears unto Abraham now. And the Lord appeared unto him, Abraham, in the plains of Mamre. This is a Hebron, just a little bit north of Jerusalem, or south of Jerusalem, rather. And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to, he ran to meet them. Watch the language very carefully. He ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. You ever watch an old man run? He runs a long place in one spot, doesn't he? (laughs) Here he's running. And said, My Lord, if I now I found sight, found favor in thy sight, pass not away. I pray thee from thy servant. And let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort and comfort ye your hearts after that ye pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, so do as thou hast. God, God the Father, I think I should say uh, the preexistent Christ. Uh, Samuel or uh, Abraham realizes that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the, pre- uh, the pre-incarnate Christ. And, and with Christ are two angels. Look at verse 6. And Abraham hastened into the tent and unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly what? <clears throat> Three measures. A fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran into the herd and fetched a calf, a tender and good, and gave it unto the young man and hastened to, and hastened, watch the language, hastened, runt. <laughs> he realized this is deity. He realized this is a Christ. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. By the way, you see the three main elements here now, the meal offering and the, and the el- main element of the uh, peace offering. The meal offering and the peace offering has to do with fellowship, having a right relationship with God, uh, a, a hospitality fellowship. I think this meal represents the right relationship with God. Loving God with all the heart and all the mind, all the strength. There's no higher priority than loving God. That what Matthew said. Remember when the Pharisee came to Christ? 
said, in effect, now look, there's 613 commandments. Lord, which one do you believe of those the most important? What did Christ tell him that was the most important of those 613 commandments? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul, all thy strength, and the second is likened to it. There's no higher priority than you and I loving God. And I think that parable of the woman slipping the leaven into the uh, three meals was the assault by Satan on that primary basic relationship with God. To corrupt there, to corrupt my relationship with the Lord is to corrupt everywhere, is it not? No higher priority than loving God, having a right relationship with Him. Well, I think that's basically when you, that's why they, the church at Ephesus, that's, it's very, a very, very serious sin. They've left their first love. But I believe this was, I believe this is a picture of the fundamentalist church. It was right on separation, right on doctrine. But uh, if we're not careful, we can let that first love slip away. And then very quickly, you see the church at Smyrna. Polycarp, by the way, pastored that church. We talked about Polycarp, Polycarp the other day. And it says, uh, you're poor, uh, materially poor, but you're spiritually rich. And uh, I, this, uh, to have a right relationship with God makes you a rich person, does it not? What makes rich, according to the book of Proverbs? <laughs> the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. And he addeth no sorrow to it. The, the blessing of the Lord is everything, amen? I need God's blessing on my life above everything else. And so we see the, the church at Smyrna was a poor church. By the way, look over on the right-hand side, you see all those promises to the churches. Well, I think every one of those promises applies to every believer. The Lord is just isolating each promise and making it a little more appropriate to the particular need of the church represented there. And then the Pergamos, it's called Satan's throne there. They're tolerating the teachings and the doctrine of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. I believe the Nicolaitans are those, uh, it's basically an assault on the congregationalism, the democracy of the local church. I believe the system of the, the, the Roman Catholic system and the hierarchy of the, uh, of the various uh, state churches, anything, uh, any attempt to have an authority over a local church, I think is a form of Nicolaitism. That word Nicolaitan means literally to conquer the people. And so when you have a church governed by uh, popes and archbishops and bishops and so on and, uh, and exercising authority over the local congregation, uh, that's a form of Nicolaitism. And they call it prelacy or prelate, an archbishop or, and it's in the history of England and so on. Uh, these uh, prelates have been uh, terrible dictators and uh, tyrants over the local churches and so on. And then, uh, of course, you can see the promises there, the hidden manna, man is Christ. And then at Thyatira, they see that as the church at Rome. That's where they uh, uh, tolerated Jezebel. If you look what Jezebel did, she taught the same things as Balaam, didn't she? Uh, what did Jezebel do? What, did, what was she attempting to do in that church at Thyatira? To seduce them, to marry them to the world. Have you ever met preachers that try to marry the church to the world? Oh, it's all right to do a little bit of social dancing and so on and social drinking and so on. It's all right to do this and do that. Don't be so narrow. And uh, there's a lot of people who try to marry the church to the world. Well, Balaam tried to marry the church to the world. 
He tried to get Israel to get the king Balak to, get, to, to have Israel eat the sacrifices that were made to idols. You remember this? And to lead them into fornication, to intermarry with the heathens, the pagans. Well, Jezebel was doing the same thing in the church at Thyatira that Balaam was trying to do. Having them eat uh, the uh, sacrifices that had been offered to, uh, to idols and lead them into immorality and so on. Well, here we see the Lord's condemning them for their lack of separation. <laughs> they should have excluded these people from the church. And then Sardis was a dead church. Some say well, that's the church of the Reformation. Well, there's no, that's a, that the church at Sardis is just a dead church. It's interesting how the Lord often introduces himself as sort of the solution to that problem. How did he introduce himself to the dead church at Sardis? He called himself the seven spirits. What did that church need? It needed the Holy Spirit. It was a dead church. <laughs> and uh, so uh, anyhow, the, uh, the, that church needed the quickening power of the seven spirits, the perfection of the Holy Spirit. Then you see Philadelphia. This was the, uh, the there was no, by the way, no condemnation of the Smyrna church and no condemnation of the church at Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia, that name means the city of brotherly love. If you want to see brotherly love in action, go to a Phillies football game sometime. You're not going to see a lot of brotherly love at those Phillies football games. I just take my at the Eagles games, I should say. Well, anyhow. And then, uh, but it's interesting, they have a wonderful promise there. Revelation 3.10. It says, I'll deliver you from the hour of temptation. There's a great scripture verse teaching the rapture. The church is going to be raptured out. It's not going to go through the tribulation. And you see that wonderful promise there to the church of Philadelphia. In Revelation 3.10, I will deliver thee from the hour of temptation. It's not just tem uh, testing and trial of the tribulation, but it's that whole time, the hour, it means the time period. The church will be raptured out. He won't have to go through the tribulation, thankfully. And then some say, that, then the church of Laodicea, that's the, uh, that's the apostate church, according to some people. No, it's not apostate. Well, once a church becomes apostate, it's no longer a church. <laughs> to become apostate means you deny the great, the, the great doctrines that you once professed to believe. An apostate is somebody who wants to profess to hold to the truth and believe the truth. And then they turn around and totally reject it. That's an apostate. I don't think apostate, an apostate was ever saved in the first place. And so this Laodicean church was not apostate. It was just lukewarm. I know a lot of churches that are just lukewarm, don't you? <laughs> and uh, God says he hates lukewarmness. And so, uh, but then he gives them a magnificent promise. Uh, he promises this Laodicean church, if they'll repent, go back and do the first works, that they'll sit with him on his throne. I can't get my mind around that, can you? That during the millennium, that I'll sit with the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne and reign with him. Uh, we as a church have some wonderful privileges, don't we? Just look at those wonderful promises. A new name, uh, uh, the white stone and the manna, and the, uh, I will give thee the morning star. What wonderful promises. I believe the manna and the morning star are the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That will have a blessed, intimate relationship with the Lord uh, in, the, in the millennium and in the future. All right. Well, that would be a good place to stop.